Good evening. Tonight we are live from the ancestral territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations who have lived and continue to live on these lands. Tonight we're breaking from our normal panel format. Instead we sit down with Kevin Falcon. We're going to pepper him with questions that will come from me, the incomparable Vaughn Palmer, and from viewers who will no doubt be breaking our Slido account hoping to ask the, the leader of the BC Liberal Party a question or two. Get ready, Kevin. There's going to be an onslaught here. <laughs> As well, we have a number of questions that were recorded from a variety of sources who also want to know what Mr. Falcon's vision of BC looks like. And just before we begin, I am going to express my wholehearted gratitude to our sponsors who make this evening possible. They are Stem Cell Technologies, the Surrey Board of Trade, Landlord BC, Polygon, BD, the Port of Vancouver, Investing News Network, and Research Co., as well as our media partner, the Vancouver Sun. And I want to especially thank Apogee Public Relations and give a big, uh, big shout out to my crew here at Old Boy Productions who are experts in live and virtual event production. One last thing, as I mentioned, for viewers online, you'll see a Slido dialog box on your screen. Please feel free to post a question. Sean, our Slido master, will be receiving your questions and bringing them forward to us, and I'll, uh, I'll use many of them to inform some of the topics and questions that we ask. And uh, now, Vaughn, it's because we don't want to take time away from getting to the meat of the matter, I'd like to ask you to give us your take on the current political landscape. Because, you know, one year ago, Premier Horrigan was undergoing treatment for throat cancer, and the Liberals were yet to wrap up one of the longest leadership contests in memory. Then on February 5th, Kevin Falcon emerged as the leader of the Liberals, committing at that time to change the name of the party. He came out swinging. And then four and a half months later, Premier Horrigan announced his resignation. What looked like a slam dunk for David Eby turned into a knock'em, sock'em, leave-no-twist-unturned leadership contest. Now we have two strong and very different party leaders, one the Premier and the other one who wants to be. Vaughn, give us your take on where we are, what we can look forward to, and as enthusiastic followers of all things political in BC, what should we be keeping our eyes open for? Well, that's a good summary off the top, Stu, and uh, I think, you know, 2023 is going to be a very important year politically. In fact, uh, we could easily be heading to an early election. I think everyone sort of speculates on that. Uh, we just had a recent session of the legislature where, you know, the, the first job, since uh, Kevin Falcon's a guest tonight, I'll give you my take on him. The first job of the opposition is to hold the government to account. And the Liberals uh, getting better at doing that. Uh, they had some, they struggled when they were in opposition at first. I don't think they quite accepted that they were in opposition. Uh, but this last session, they made the big issues uh, in the legislature, public safety, uh, waiting lists for health care and housing, and they went at it again and again. And they really set the agenda during the session. So I think, as I say, that's the first thing you have to do as an opposition party. The second thing you have to do as an opposition party is to get ready to be in government and show that you're ready to be in government. And the Liberals have a lot of work to do on that. The opinion polls have consistently shown in this past year that the public is not all that happy with what the government has done on a number of the big files. But they've not shown that the public has said, and we think the Liberals are the answer under Kevin Falcon. They haven't gone that next step. And the Liberals, you alluded to one of the things they've set for themselves, they have a lot to do. Their plan to change their name is a conundrum because 
Um, oh, look, it's, it's a simple bit of math. If the premier's thinking of an early election, he only has to give four weeks notice. But to rebrand a political party is a major advertising campaign that can take months. So as we enter 2023, it's gonna, I'm going to be interested to hear what Kevin Falcon says. What's your plan to change your name? Because what if you get halfway into it and he'd be called a snap election, as he may well do. With that hanging there in the air, I think we're in for a very exciting year politically. Well, let's ask him that question right now. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, thank you, Vaughn. And thank you, Stu. I think that's a good overview. Um, look, as far as the name change, uh, I was always very clear with the party. It's up, if the membership wants to change the name, I'm happy to run under the current name, a new name, whatever. And I wanted to leave that to the party members. And they voted over 80%, uh, virtually right across the province, to go for a new name, BC United, which I think is exciting. I think it's a huge opportunity for us. Uh, as I said to Vaughn uh, one time during a press scrum in Victoria, you know, we're not Coca-Cola. Um, when you're changing the name of a political party, it's not like this is some major effort that's going to require millions of dollars to be spent, etc. ABC in Vancouver didn't exist a year ago. Uh, Brenda Locks, the new mayor of Surrey, you know, her party name, nobody knew what that name was six months ago prior to the election. Um, I think it's not, it's important not to get too hung up on a name, but the timing is important. And David Eby controls the timing of the next election. Now, this should be an easy discussion because uh, the law is quite clear. The election is going to be held October 2024. And Mr. Eby has said repeatedly that, oh, yes, I am in, absolutely intend to stick to the law, uh, except that the truth is I, I can't, nor should I really trust him, um, because we saw what they did in 2020. And uh, I am going to, you know, not get caught uh, by surprise. So what will I do? Well, I'm going to wait and see. Now, we get the uh, new name ratified at a convention in January. Uh, then we have to spend some time and effort doing the branding and logo and all that kind of stuff. That'll take a few months. And so in the best circumstances, we couldn't do it in the spring anyhow. So it's going to have to be sometime after spring. And uh, if there's no election, then that clearly opens up a window that uh, I could then look at. So if he did call a snap election, then you would run under the Liberal Absolutely. banner? Absolutely, yep. So I want to ask you a question because Vaughn talked about the fact that, yes, you one of your responsibilities is to hold the government accountable, but the other is to present yourself as a viable alternative. When I think about leadership, I think, okay, I want somebody who can peek over the horizon, maybe around the corner of history just a little bit, and see uh, a a vision for a, for the province. What's your vision if you form government? How is BC going to be different 12, 18 months after you take office? Well, that's a great question because it's actually the reason why I came back to public life. I mean, I left public life because of my kids. You know, my eldest daughter was, I think, about two and a half at the time. My wife was pregnant with our second daughter when I was deputy premier and finance minister. And, you know, I just thought to myself, I'd, I'd done 12 years of public life and I wanted to be a present dad. So, you know, it was a good decision to leave and it was the best decision I ever made. And I spent the last 10 years in the private sector and, and being a dad, along with my wife, Jessica, to her two girls. And, but the reason I'm coming back is for the same thing. It's for the kids, not my kids specifically, but that generation. Uh, my kids are now nine and 12 and I think about that generation and beyond. And, and I just feel like we don't have the kind of leadership we need in this province or country that is going to tackle some of the big challenges we face, whether in healthcare, whether in mental health and addiction, whether it's in crime, street crime and disorder that you see happening all over the place. Um, we need leadership that's going to have the courage to be bold and to tackle these issues. And that's why I'm doing this. And it's, it's um, you know, 
do you change in, in politics? You know, people ask me that all the time, have I changed? In some ways, yes, I think having kids changes you. My principles don't change, but your values kind of do. And, you know, I guess I just look at the world today and I think there is a real paucity of leadership. And uh, I just felt an obligation to step forward and say, look, I, I think I've got some ideas here and I'm you know, willing to put those out in front of the public and I'm, I'm totally fine letting the public decide if those ideas are better than what we're getting right now. And if they think they are, that's great. Then I'll be premier and I, I'll, work, I'll work very hard for the citizenry. <laughs> yeah, a couple of uh, getting ready questions. Uh, the Greens announced the other day that uh, they're going to start nominating candidates. They think there's a good chance of a snap election. They want a slate in place. Are you going to do the same? Yes. Starting in the new year? Yep. Yeah, yeah. We, we were already on that, to be honest with you, Vaughn. Um, putting together an election readiness group, making sure that we are already identifying early nomination meetings. Yeah. Um, so that process has been underway actually for some time. The, you, the Liberal membership, the numbers we've seen, and the NDP membership, the numbers we've seen from them, uh, the Liberals have got three or four times as many members as the NDP. But when you look at fundraising, it's reversed. The New mm -hmm. Democrats are raising a lot more money than mm -hmm. the Liberals still. Why are you having so much trouble getting together the money? Well, <laughs> you know, so since I became leader in February, um, we've had a lot happening. So uh, the first thing we did is we got the NDP to back down on that billion dollar museum in Victoria. And then I had to get elected through a by-election to the legislature. And then we had another by-election in Surrey South to elect Eleanor Sturco in a very significant win that I'm very proud of for our party uh, in a critical battleground Surrey. Um, uh, and then we had, you know, the spring session, the fall session. So there's been a lot going on. I've only been able to really turn my attention to fundraising in the last month and a half, to be totally candid with you. And, uh, you know, one thing that uh, has helped, frankly, is the changeover in leadership for the NDP. Uh, since David E.B. became leader that, uh, you know, I've received a bunch of phone calls, people really wanting to help. So that in itself has uh, happily um, helped us in the fundraising side. I think you'll see that by the end of Q4 here, um, there's a very good chance that uh, we are probably going to out fundraise the NDP for the first time ever. Uh, what did you take on E.B.? Is he doing anything right so far? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I think that the decision he made to um, back off on clawing back the individualized autism funding uh, was a very good decision because, you know, I, I worked with a lot of the parents in the uh, autistic community that were just so devastated by that decision. And for a year, they've gone through real torture. It's been very, very challenging for those, for those families. And they've had to come out, as you know, Vaughn, in the rain out in front of the legislature, in the pouring rain, trying to get government to listen to them and They've protested in front of his office multiple times. And, you know, I, I, I said to uh, Premier Horgan while he was still Premier, there's never the wrong time. It's never the wrong time to do the right thing. You know, you've got to listen to these parents, please. And I offered to jointly sit down with them on a very nonpartisan basis just to hear them at least. Because the challenge they were facing is that nobody would listen to them in government. Mitzi Dean refused to sit down with these parents. Uh, Premier wouldn't sit down. David Eby wouldn't meet with them. And so it was creating a real problem for them. But he did the right thing ultimately, and I commend him for that. This uh, $5.7 billion surplus that was announced the other day, or at least forecast the other day, what would you do with it if you were in charge? Well, you know, first of all, I think we have to always be careful when we talk about surpluses. It's, it's not our money. You know, government always thinks, oh, that's our money, and now we can go squander it. But actually, um, what, what we've done is that's, that's the taxpayer's money. And I think we have a, a real obligation to be responsible in how we spend it. My concern is, that you know, with these announcements that David Eby is making every other day, um, what they're trying to do is spend it all before the end of the year. Because as you know, under the, under the laws that we put in place, there's a requirement that it be used to pay down debt any excess uh, dollars that are still available. And so 
Um, my concern with that approach is that when you try to spend that much money in such a short period of time, you make reckless decisions. And they're decisions that have implications that will go beyond the budget year and create, you know, frankly, bad behavior uh, in, in ministries that are trying to get those dollars out the door really quickly. Uh, and you probably won't get the kind of outcomes that you hope to get. At the end of the day, I think if, if I could summarize, uh, you know, my biggest critique of the government, just putting aside the ideological differences, it's really just that that gap, that big gap I see between out, you know, the, the, the sort of the uh, announcements they make, which they're very good at, but the results that we get are very divorced from the actual promises and the, out, and, and the uh, announcements. And I just think we have to focus the public attention on results. What results are we getting? And when we look at the results, Vaughn, whether it's healthcare, whether it's crime, whether it's affordability, whatever the case may be, they're really very, very poor. And that's what I want to hold the government to account for. You did an event with Pierre, Pierre Polyev the other day. Uh, is that your way of endorsing him and saying you're going to be working uh, same side of the political spectrum as him? No, no, not at all. In fact, I, I had breakfast with him in Surrey. He happened to be in Surrey and reached out uh, wanting to get together. And I happily did so. You know, I take the approach that we had when I was in government. Gordon Campbell actually was, was really, really very good at this, saying our obligation is to go work with the government and the opposition. We work with both sides, let them know what our priorities are, um, be very upfront about what it is we're trying to achieve and how we can work together to achieve that to the benefit of British Columbians. I park all my federal politics once I'm involved in provincial politics. Um, you know, and, and I ask all my caucus mates to do that too, uh, even though it's difficult sometimes. And, and uh, But I think it's important because we are a coalition. We've got prominent federal liberals involved in our party. We have conservatives in our party lapsed NDPers uh, that are in our membership, et cetera. So we've got to try and make sure that we work for all of them. Um, is there a role for social conservatism in the BC Liberal Party? And how much control will the social conservatives have over social policy and issues like abortion? Well, I've been very clear that we're, gonna, we're pro-choice. And so we're not going to be uh, you know, having fights about issues like abortion, pro-life, those kind of issues. But uh, I always say I'm not going to squelch people that have differing opinions from me. I've always been clear about that. I'm fine if people have differing opinions, but they just need to know when they come into this party, it's a big tent party, they're allowed to have that voice and I want them to feel welcome, but they need to understand that we're not going to be advocating uh, a pro-life position, that we are a pro-choice party, full stop. One thing that really stood out about that new, that new cabinet, and I've seen a lot of cabinets, mm -hmm. Uh, whatever else you might say about it, the New Democrats have accomplished really an impressive level of diversity. Yes. They look like the face of the new British Columbia. And I have to say, looking over the Liberal benches in the BC House, it, that party doesn't look like that. Can you accomplish that level of diversity and how do you get there? Yes, I can. In fact, when I ran for leader, I made it very clear that that was one of the things that uh, I intended to do. Uh, as you know, the co-chairs of my campaign, Diane Watts and Panit Sander, uh, were part of exemplifying the fact that I'm going to make sure that this party is going to be diverse, that we're going to have more women, more youth, more diversity in the party writ large. And uh, that's something that I am personally taking responsibility for. Uh, it's why I'm excited about uh, the fact that we attracted such a high quality candidate like Eleanor Sturko in Surrey South, a member of the LGBT community. But, but equally important, a sergeant in the RCMP, an active community-involved uh, individual, and someone that's made a great addition to our party. I think, and I've always believed this, there is genuinely strength and diversity. 
And you know, when I ran in 2001, you'll remember our caucus back then, Vaughn. Frankly, it was way more diverse than it is today. And my objective is to make sure that in the next campaign, we are going to have a campaign team that is going to reflect the diversity of our province, which is a great strength. And uh, it's something that I'm personally going to be overseeing. So I'm just going to take a moment and ask Amy to roll a poll that we had Mario Canseco take, just taking sure. the temperature right now on top issues and a little bit about you, Amy. As the year draws to a close, most residents of British Columbia remain concerned about two matters, housing and healthcare. Housing is now the number one issue for half of BC residents aged 18 to 34, while healthcare is the key worry for almost two in five residents aged 55 and over. This generational divide will certainly play a role in the next campaign. While the next BC election is not supposed to take place until 2024, there is growing speculation that a vote may be held sometime next year. Almost half of BC residents currently think it is very likely or moderately likely that we will cast ballots for members of the Legislative Assembly in 2023. It is important to note that BC Liberal voters and BC Green Party voters in 2020 are more likely to believe that an early election will happen than those who support the governing BC NDP. In the next BC election, the BC Liberals will have a new name, BC United. While a majority of BC residents say they don't particularly like this new name, there are some important generational and political differences. The name is well received by 40% of residents aged 18 to 34 and by 56% of those who voted for the BC Liberals in the 2020 election. This month, BC Liberals leader Kevin Falcon posted his highest rating of the year at 41%, up five points since October 2022. Falcon's favorability numbers are decidedly superior to what was observed in the early stages of Andrew Wilkinson's leadership tenure. Falcon is particularly popular in Southern BC and Northern BC. More than seven in 10 BC Liberal voters in 2020 are happy with the way he has carried on his duties. For Conversations Live, I'm Mario Canseco from ResearchGo. So one of the things that I think shows up here is that you really have a lot of work to do here in the Lower Mainland to mm -hmm. get voters here to fall in behind you or, or at least appreciate you as a potential leader. How do you get to them? I think it's a combination of things. One, I think policy really still matters. I think ideas matter. It's why I got back into this business, frankly, because I, I think that, you know, I have the ability to craft and put together some policy ideas that are going to really tackle some of the challenges that the public worry about there that you saw there and housing affordability and, and uh, health care. And, and crime is the big sleeper issue, by the way, that, you know, that I don't think gets picked up like it should in a lot of polls. Um, but I think those are issues that people want to see resolved. And um, that's one way. The second way is just going out and finding really great candidates. And look, the NDP have done a very good job. Back to your point, Vaughn, I, I, I totally give them credit. I don't like the way they do it because I don't like quota systems. I've got two daughters. I don't want them to get a position because of a quota. I think you can still go out and attract really outstanding, diverse individuals that bring a lot to the table uh, without having to have a quota system. And that's something that uh, I'm going to demonstrate that we can do. You talked about housing affordability. We have David Hutniak from Landlord BC in the studio right now. And, you know, the private sector is looking at the current landscape saying, well, we want to come to the market with uh, solutions, but how do we do that? David, you have a question for uh, Mr. Falcon. 
Yeah, thank you. Good evening, uh, Mr. Falcon. Thank you for joining us today. Um, my question is as follows. As BC's rental housing ecosystem is facing very precarious times and successive governments have failed to address the key issue of bridging the worlds and needs of renters and landlords. It seems governments want to have it both ways, advancing what they consider help for renters while at the same time ignoring the fact that they are harming landlords. If you were the Premier of British Columbia, what workable solutions would you bring to the table to bridge the worlds and needs of renters and landlords? Yeah. Uh, it's such a great question. You know, if you look around the Lower Mainland, one of the things that you will see is that all our rental stock, or most of our rental stock, comes from a certain vintage, sort of that mid-70s to early 80s. And you may ask yourself, why is it that all the housing, rental housing was built and then it seemed to have stopped? Well. The fact is they had a pretty good program in place back then that incentivized the private sector called the MERB program, the Multi-Unit Re Residential Building Program. And it was a fairly straightforward tax uh, credit that allowed a flow, I won't explain the details to complicate the audience, but point is it attracted private capital uh, that then went and built the rental housing because the capital was there and, and they, the developers went out and did what they did. The problem is since that day when they pulled the program in the early 80s, there's been almost no rental built, very little. And the reason is, is that the economic returns are very skinny. And so developers would rather go build condos or townhomes or something else that's going to provide a better return on capital. And I think the fundamental challenge of this government, David, is that, you know, their intentions are good around housing, but the results they're getting are terrible. And I would argue it's because they don't understand the economics of housing. Um, you know, the private sector is pretty simple, actually. If they can't get a return or they're going to lose money, they're probably not going to go do what you want them to do. And so if you keep putting in place uh, policies that are going to make it more difficult uh, to, for them to earn a return on their capital, they're just not going to make those investments. And so then the government says, well, we'll go and try and do it. And so this government did that, saying they'll build 114,000 affordable homes in 10 years. Now, I was in the private sector at that time, and I can tell you right across the private sector, you could almost hear the laughing from the different offices because there's no way government's going to build 114,000 affordable housing units in 10 years. And sure enough, here we are, they're you know, coming up to year six in their second term, and you know they've built about 9% of those promised housing units. Many started under the BC Liberals. So I, I do think that um, policy matters. Now, the challenge is, what they've done is they put a cap on rent right now uh, of 2%. And the problem is they've done it in the midst of an inflationary environment where a lot of landlords, and by the way, most landlords in, in, that are your clientele, I assume, David, are smaller landlords. These are mom and pops. They're not all big corporations. Some of them are, but not all of them. And, and they're facing an inflationary pressure just like everyone else is. Utilities are going up, costs are going up, insurance is going up, gas, fuel, everything, um, repairs, maintenance. And yet they're capped at how much they can collect back. Now that creates a problem because it can result in not enough repairs and maintenance being done to buildings. And then you start to get a downward spiral. So while you're helping the tenants, in many ways you're hurting them because you're not allowing new future product to be built to help provide the true competition that we need in the rental market, which is flood the zone, get way more in. You get more rental supply into that marketplace and then you'll finally see landlords won't have the upper hand that they have today. Now, I recognize at a time of affordability, you know, getting rid of that 2%, it's not going to be realistic right now. But we have to figure out a way that we can look after tenants, but still be able to encourage the private sector to do what we need them to do, which is build a lot more housing. And these folks, I, I don't think, get that. 
uh, I think I can honestly say I do, and I've got ideas around that. Well, do you run the risk, though, with your background in the development market as being seen as though you're somebody who is uh, supporting that side of the equation, even though you may be saying the same thing? And I ask that because we have a question from Bob Rennie, who says, you know, you've got a bit of a perception problem here. Uh, Amy, run uh, Bob's. <laughs> Coming from Bob, that's funny. <laughs> Bob Rennie here. Uh, Stu McNish has asked me to put forward a question to Kevin Falcon, the leader of the BC Liberal Party. Kevin, my question to you is that when the BC Liberal Party, or new name, BC United, and Kevin Falcon propose housing density supply, it's seen as lining the pockets of rich developers. Yet when David Eby and the NDP propose housing solutions, supply, and density. It's seen just as that as housing solutions solving affordability. This is a perception that has existed for years. How do you see the BC Liberals, Kevin Falcon, BC United Party, changing that perception? Because it does exist in our industry. Sure. Well, I think that's actually pretty easy. Um, maybe I'm just crazy, but would it be the end of the world if we had a premier that actually knew a thing or two about housing? I don't know. I'm thinking it might not be such a bad thing. Uh, look, the fact of the matter is I worked on the capital side of the business, not the development side anyhow. But the, the reality is this. Um, let's look at the housing program of, under the current government, totally objectively. They were elected in 2017. They introduced a whole new blizzard of taxes onto housing. They said that that was, they said the housing problem was because uh, of evil developers and foreign buyers, okay? So they added all these new taxes and said that that's how they were gonna get to affordable housing. Well, let's do a gut check. They're in their second term now, almost six years into it, and we've ended up with the highest housing prices in North America. That's not a good outcome. And, you know, it took them like year five before David Eby, while he was housing minister, finally acknowledged that maybe lack of supply might have something to do with the housing problem. Well, no kidding. I mean, like, I'm sorry, but it, I think it would be really good if we had somebody that did understand the housing business. Look, I could tell you, developers are very simple people. They're like any other business people. If you're going to have them play in a sandbox, let them know what the rules are. That's all. And don't change the rules when they're in the middle of the sandbox. In other words, somebody goes in, they're going to invest capital, they just want to know what the rules of the game are and then they'll go and do whatever they got to do. But the problem with this government is they're constantly changing the rules and they're moving things around. They have a new tax here and then a new regulation here. Now they got a new idea over here. And I think the challenge is that they haven't got the fundamental understanding, not because they're bad people, just because they haven't got any experience in the private sector that would inform them how they can make smarter decisions to get the outcome we need. Look, I mean, that's why I think it's so important to look at results. So my answer to Bob is, I say to the public, listen, yes, I do know a lot about housing, okay? I don't pretend to know everything, but I know quite a bit. And I think that will actually be helpful uh, in a government that's trying to get housing supply into the market. So <laughs> we can always like push deeper and deeper into each of these topics, but we did promise viewers that they could send in questions. Sure. Sean? What's at the top of the list right now? Uh, thank you, Stuart. We're getting uh, quite a few really thoughtful questions in tonight. It's, it's excellent to see. So the top-rated question right now comes for, from Serena Novak, and it's uh, since David Eby brought in no fault, 
There are plenty of stories about people who can't get a settlement from ICBC. Do you have plans to address this? Okay, so this, I, this is something that I am hearing a lot about from victims and from families. You know, the thing about no fault that's so great is it does save money for the corporation. There's no question about it. And it saves ratepayers money. That's the easy part. But I always say to people, the, the other shoe hasn't dropped yet. And the other shoe is what happens when people get seriously injured and suddenly realize that there's really not much help available for them at all. And uh, the stories that, that we are starting to hear are really heartbreaking, very heartbreaking, to be honest with you. And and I just think it's important to understand that, you know, David Eby had told, you know, the trial lawyers, for good or for bad, that he wasn't going to bring in no fault. He looked them in the eye and said, we're not going to do this. And then he went out and he did it. That's an interesting thing to remember in light of the election commitments. I better remember that. But uh, uh, anyhow, but, but I think it's, you know, it's important to understand. And I'm not taking us back to a world pre-no fault. I want to be clear about that. But, but I do think that stripping away all that choice and not having the mechanism in place to look after people is a real problem. Now, ICBC is trying to fill that hole now. And they're you know, trying to hire people and figure out how to deal with all these folks. But I'll tell you, it, there's some heartbreaking stories out there of people that are, are not being looked after and are having to navigate the system by themselves. And that's hard to do when you've got a brain injury or you've been severely injured in an accident. And uh, as more and more of these stories pour in, I'll tell you, I think that he's, he's gonna, the public's going to start hearing about this. Would you, would you stick mm -hmm. with the ICBC model? Because I know when the Liberals were in power the last time they looked at it mm -hmm. and decided, no, nope, we're going to stick with it. Uh, would you stick with it still going forward? With, with this distinction, yes. But I want choice. I, gen I genuinely want choice and I want competition, especially on the optional side. Uh, the basics a little more challenging. But, but I've always believed that when you give the public more choice, that is a better thing. And the problem has always been trying to figure out how we can create a fair competitive framework so that ICBC is not driving the private insurers out by, you know, uh, subsidizing their optional against the, the, the revenues they get out of the basic. But I think there are ways to do that. The insurance industry is convinced there are too. But I like choice. I don't like taking away people's choice. New Democrats wrote with a press release today saying you oppose the ICBC rate freeze for two years. Do you? Well, no, I don't know where they came up with that. Um, look, of course, I love the idea of a rate freeze. But, you know, Vaughn, that's a really good example, actually. Um, you know, so the corporation is on track to lose over a quarter of a billion dollars this year. The government says we're going to freeze rates for two years. I, I don't have any objection to that. I love that when the public get a break. But in light of the, you know, the, the likely deficit, um, I was curious about they're asking the BC Utilities Commission for approval to do this. And I felt that was going to be unlikely, it seems to me. And you asked the right question. You said, have you, uh, are you going to be drafting an order in council effectively telling them to do that? And, uh, you know, I, I'll be charitable and say that I think EB's answer was not entirely accurate because we found out later they had drafted the OIC, number 666, as you pointed out, ironically, um, and that that OIC was already given direction to the BCUC to effectively, uh, you know, okay that, that decision. So... Not sure that was handled appropriately. So you, you talked about having options for insurance. What about healthcare? Sean, what's our next question here? There are quite a few questions coming in on healthcare. Uh, the top rated one right now is Is there a role for expanding the private sector to deal with the healthcare crises to take on some of the overcrowding our current system can't handle? The, the 
private sector, you know, this is a shibboleth that the NDP love to bring up. The moment you talk about private sector, they will immediately say, oh my goodness, they want a US-style healthcare system. I have yet to meet anyone that wants a US-style healthcare system. But I can tell you that our system is in danger of collapsing. It is that serious. Um, I have heard horror stories all around the province. I've had people, my phone's nearby, I could show you pictures of people literally lying on the floor of a hospital in Surrey, uh, having to phone their spouse to bring them a blanket because they're freezing cold. They've been asked to lie on the floor because no beds are available. Um, this is not the healthcare system that people ever expected they would see. And so understand that 30% of our healthcare system is private. Now, all the dental industry, for example, is private. What I do find interesting is I don't see people standing in lineups outside of dentist office trying to begging to try and get access to a dentist. Um, you know, in the public system, we've got one out of five people that can't access a family physician. We have one million people today waiting to see a specialist. Uh, we've got, when they go to a, a walk-in clinic, they're facing the longest wait times in Canada. Those are not good results. And again, I come back to the whole point about the promises and the outcomes. Now the government, Adrian Dick, stands up in the legislature and says, well, we've hired 38,000 new people. And I always point out, well, that's interesting. But they're certainly not doctors and nurses and allied care workers. I know you've hired a lot more administrative folks because I can see the administrative costs in all the health authorities are up by almost 100%. And I also see that we have 64 vice presidents earning an average of $400,000 a year. Well, in neighboring Alberta with a similar population, they have seven. That tells me we've got a problem. So private involvement in the healthcare system, it's already there. It's been there for a long time. In fact, it started under the NDP in the 90s. Dr. Brian Day and the Canby Clinic started under the NDP. It continues to serve government clients today. WCB patients, guess where they go? They go through the private clinics. Why? Because the government wants them back into the workforce as quickly as possible. So let's put the silly politics aside and recognize that our focus has to be on patients. I care about patients. I just want them looked after. When I was health minister, we were doing private procedures right across the street from St. Paul's Hospital for people that had hand and foot injuries. And you know what? Not one client that was being looked after could care less that they were being looked after across the street or in the hospital. They just wanted to be looked after. And that's what I care about, outcomes. You talked about crime and you said that you're actually surprised that it's not higher on people's list of concerns, but it's there and I, I agree with you, it is growing. Uh, I went to uh, Deputy Chief uh, Vancouver Police Steve Rye and asked him to pose a question to you. Oh, yeah. Steve Rye, Deputy Chief Vancouver Police Department. This is a question for Kevin Falcon. Kevin, what strategies and programs will you implement to help educate and keep our youth in BC from joining negative peer groups and participating in gang-associated behavior. How do you plan on delivering these strategies and programs to BIPOC communities who are newer to Canada and more vulnerable and susceptible to grooming and recruitment? Such a great question because that prevention element is so critical. And you know, there are police officers, current and, and past, that volunteer their efforts in doing exactly that, working with kids that are at risk, and especially in inner city neighborhoods in Vancouver and Surrey especially. You know, you get a recent immigrant that comes here that's struggling to learn the language, et cetera. They are targets for a lot of the drug gangs that are out there. And we just have to do a better job of making sure we connect them to positive role models and positive uh, involvements, whether it's sports or volunteering, 
whatever the case may be. And I, you know, I do think that that's an area that we can do a lot more. There are some really good groups out there, but often they're out trying to raise money on their own. You know, with all the five billion dollars available, honestly, government should try and provide some dollars to some of these groups that are actually doing some great work with kids. I know in Surrey, there's a number of organizations um, that that try to reach out to those young people. But we have to get them early so that we don't have to deal with them later in the criminal justice system and you know healthcare system, etc. On a public safety issue, if you don't mind me jumping in with a question on that, a uh, report is going to Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth from Surrey uh, saying that Surrey wants to reverse direction and get rid of their new standalone private, or not private, but Surrey police force and go back to the RCMP. I, I expect in opposition sometimes there are decisions where you go, gee, I'm glad the government has to make that decision and I don't. But in this case, if, you had, if you had that recommendation, what would you do in Surrey? Yeah. Well, if, if I was in government, I'm not. Uh, what I would ask for is to make sure that Surrey residents a long time ago and this is where I think the government really missed the opportunity. A long time ago, they should have said, okay, if you're moving towards a police force, that's okay, but let's just make sure all the information's out there so the public know exactly you know, what the benefits and costs are going to be in that decision. That was never done, and that's happening now. And, and uh, I know that uh, you know, Minister Farnworth is going to have to deal with that once that information's out there. I understand just the other day, in fact, that the... Um, city of Surrey, I think, put out some numbers as to what they thought the cost of transitioning uh, over to a new police force would be. That's being disputed, I understand, from the police force. So it, it's a bit of a mess, to be honest with you, that it's gotten this far. Uh, but that's a decision government's going to have to take uh, based on when they get all those numbers sorted out. What would you do? Well, uh, I don't want to speculate because I, I, I just don't think that's fair for me to inject myself into that, Vaughn, to be honest with you. Um, I do think that when we look at policing, we do have to look at you know uh, the, the reports that were done. There was a legislative committee that recommended a provincial police force. I don't know that that's necessary, frankly, that we have to have an entire police force. I do think the RCMP serve an important purpose, especially in smaller rural communities where there really is a value for money proposition for those communities. Uh, but I do think you know regionally, we do have to look at options there. What was your response to uh, Doug Lepard and Amanda Butler's uh, report and really their focus on uh, making sure that we get repeat offenders off the street? Well, it was, it, was a, you know, it was a relief, to be honest with you, because we were raising this in the legislature when David Eby was Attorney General. You know, he's been the Chief Law Operating Officer for five and a half years at this NDP government before he became Premier. And what's been happening is there's been what we call a catch and release system where people are arrested, they're released off in the same day. They're back out committing crimes. And these aren't minor crimes. These are some pretty serious violent offenses, uh, and many of which we raised in the legislature, as Vaughn would well know. And we kept in, you know, saying to David Eby, would you please give direction to Crown Council? We even wrote it out for him uh, over six months ago. You can give direction to Crown Council. It's been done before, where you basically say to them, when you're balancing the interests of public community safety and the interests of a violent repeat offender to be released back into the community, the interests of public safety must take priority. Effectively, that's what you're saying. And, you know, he, he bobbed and weaved and wouldn't do it. And then he hired two consultants and they spent four and a half months to, frankly, tell him how to do his job. I mean, I, I, I do find this frustrating because a lot of people have been really hurt. There's been people that have lost their lives. There's been moms that have had children spat at while they were walking with their strollers. 
people chased down the street, young 19-year-old Asian woman hit in the head with a steel bar and racial slurs yelled at her and just awful stuff that's been happening. And the delays, you know, in a city like Vancouver where four people a day are being attacked by random strangers, that's 120 people a month. You know, that four, four and a half month delay is like 600 more people that were assaulted in that time. So the, the, there was just this lack of urgency to deal with it. So what have they done? Well, they've sort of deal, dealt with it. Uh, he said, well, we're going to make a change to the BC Crown Prosecutor Policy Manual and make some minor change to the wording to, you know, try to emphasize detainment over release. But I don't think it was clear enough, frankly. I think clear direction should be provided directly to Crown Counsel. So one of the hardest issues that faces us right now, uh, this came out in a conversation that I recorded with uh, Douglas Todd just a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about the situation on the downtown east side. Yes. Sympathy for people who find themselves in that situation. But what came out of his story, he said, is we've got like what is a wicked problem. Like there is no simple one, you push here and it'll improve something there, and there's nothing that's provable at the moment. How do we address this situation? Well, this is, uh, this is uh, such a passionate issue for me. You know, I've spent the last 10 years prior to getting back into politics on the board of the Street to Home Foundation, working with, to create housing for homelessness and really delving down into the issues that drive, you know, the homelessness challenge, you know, addictions and mental health issues, et cetera. I've volunteered in the downtown east side. I've toured through the low barrier housing and shelters all over the place. I've also traveled around to different cities to see what's happening there as part of the street to home. We went to San Francisco. We looked at Delancey Street, which does some phenomenal work with uh, folks that are struggling with addictions, et cetera. And one thing I could say with a high degree of confidence, almost everything we're doing right now is the wrong thing. And the way you can just really easily see that is by just looking at the downtown east side and saying to yourself, is, is this really working? I mean, how did we get to a place where, you know, I can go to cities around the world. I've been to New York and traveled all over the place. I never see anything remotely resembling what we've got happening down there. And yet there is more federal, provincial <coughs> and local money, taxpayer dollars being spent in that 26 block radius than probably per square foot than probably anywhere else on earth. And yet we're getting the worst possible outcomes. So that's where I always say to myself, okay, so if you're in government and you're getting really bad outcomes, why would you just do more of the same? Because you're just going to get the same bad outcomes. But that's what this government will do. They'll just keep doing more of the same, hoping that, that somehow we're going to get different outcomes. They won't. So here's what I say. Um, number one, the mental health challenge. This is where I think all governments have to accept blame, uh, including the government I was part of, all the way back actually to social credit days when the decision was made, uh, it was really a North American wide sort of trend to shut down what they used to call mental institutions, Riverview, Essendale, Trunk Hill up in Kamloops, and put those folks back into the communities with supports. Well, the problem is the supports were either fractured or not really there. And today we are seeing the results, I would argue, of those decisions that were made a long time ago. And I think we just have to accept that when we see someone out in the street yelling or screaming to no particular person, pushing a cart or, you know, uh, dealing with all the issues they deal with, that is somebody's son or daughter or sibling or parent. And we owe them a duty much better than what we're doing right now. Right now, they're left to their own devices, quite frankly. And, and I think there's misplaced compassion out there. People pretend they care about these folks, but we don't care about them if we're leaving them like that. I don't think we do. And so I think a different response means that we have to compassionately, lovingly, 
involuntarily if necessary, remove them from the streets and put them in genuine 24-7 care. Not like the old institutional model, but, but a modernized version of Riverview, apartment-like setting with uh, you know 24-7 proper psychiatric support and medical supports. And I can tell you this, if we do that, we not only will save lives, but we reduce a lot of the sort of the social disorder and chaos that we're seeing on the streets. Um, and we help eliminate the stigmatism of mental health too, which I think is a, is a real concern. But I think we owe it to those folks because right now the way it works is if they ever see a clinician or a physician, which is very unlikely because physicians see them coming in the office, they get nervous, obviously. Um, you know, what'll probably happen is they'll get referred to see, you know, a psychiatrist two months from now on a Tuesday morning at 8.30. And obviously there's no chance that individual has the wherewithal to remember to show up at something like that. So I think that's very, very important. The second thing that I think is important is we have to have a focus on addictions that eliminates the stigma, first of all, and secondly, focuses on treatment and recovery so that we help people get off their addictions, not maintain an ecosystem so that you can have a lifetime of addiction, which is what the current government is focused on. I don't think that's the right result either. And I think the, the results are clear for everyone to see, not just in the downtown east side, by the way, but in every community across the province. And the answer that the government has done historically, and David Eby and the NDP, has been to buy motels and hotels and warehouse the mentally ill and the highly addicted into these motels and hotels without any meaningful supports. And that has created total chaos in the surrounding communities. It's not working. And the first thing we have to do is acknowledge that what we're doing today isn't working. We have to try something different. Julian Summers has an idea that he'd like to present to you. Amy? Hi, I'm Julian Summers. I'm a clinical psychologist in the area of addiction and a distinguished professor in health sciences at Simon Fraser University. Uh, Mr. Falcon, my question has a, back, a little bit of a backdrop to it. Um, as you know, for the last, uh, over the last 20 years, a uh, number of reports um, and experiments have been conducted in Canada addressing addiction, homelessness, and mental illness. And as the crisis has grown, particularly in British Columbia, governments across the country have failed to implement the results of those experiments, including $120 million randomized controlled trials that were led in Vancouver by SFU. A plan to implement the results of that evidence has been developed, coordinated by SFU, but with, in partnership with not-for-profit societies around the province who are, uh, and, and presented to the government with a complete three-year budget, as well as benchmarks regarding expected outcomes and the means to measure those outcomes in the new invested projects. The current government responded to this proposal by ignoring the proposal itself and ordering SFU to destroy the database that would be the basis for evaluating progress of new programs. If you're elected, do you commit to implementing the call to action to address homelessness, addiction, and mental illness as coordinated by SFU? and restore to full functioning the interministry database that has been the basis for new knowledge about interministry programs for the last 20 years and is the ideal vehicle for evaluating the effectiveness of new government investments in addressing these challenges. Thank you.
Yeah, thank you. Uh, Dr. Summers has done some amazing work. And it, it, you know, when I first heard this, I was genuinely shocked uh, that, you know, I can understand why the government ideologi ideologically might not have liked what some of their research was showing in terms of a different approach to dealing with those that, that struggle with addiction, et cetera. But to then take that further step of saying, no, not only are we not going to take any of the information, we want you to destroy all that evidence that government spent, you know, literally millions and millions of dollars. It's really disturbing. I have, I, I want to dig deeper into finding out why that happened. But, you know, I, I think one of the things I always tried to do, I was only health minister for two years. I, I, I'm really very much, if people really want to understand me, I'm very much about evidence. I will, I, I remember going down the Salomone and the Naomi trials were very controversial at the time. The conservative government of Stephen Harper was very opposed to us undertaking these trials. And, uh, you know, we ended up fighting them in court over it. But I felt very strongly that we have to, uh, you know, because I met with some of the heroin addicts and I was talking to them and, and we were trying to hopefully stabilize them with some replacement, you know, uh, uh, essentially heroin um, so that we could see whether by stabilizing them we could get them to a place where we can then connect them to services, etc. And uh, I, you know, I always felt that it was important that we do that research, that we find out, does this work? And uh, so... Whenever I hear something like uh, what Dr. Summers talked about, where they did a huge amount of research and work at SFU uh, that determined that there's a different direction we ought to be looking at and considering when it comes to treating uh, those with addictions and making sure that there are the proper measurements in place so we know whether anyone's actually getting better. Government doesn't even follow or, or do any measurements today. So they can't actually tell you whether anyone through treatment is actually getting better because they don't do any long-term follow-up. And I, I think that's a real problem in our system right now, a huge gap. And it's very concerning what he talked about. Uh, let's talk about taxes for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. um, the speculation tax. I've heard you say some bad things about it. I, I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with the speculation tax. It strikes me that not only is it raising a certain amount of money, but it's leading people to rent out places uh, and not leave them vacant. That strikes me as a good thing. What's wrong with it? Well, nothing's wrong with it. And, and, you know, the NDP keep trying to say, I'm going to get rid of the speculation tax. And I've said multiple times, no, I'm not. But what I have said is, first of all, let's understand it has very little to do with speculation bond, virtually nothing. Uh, two thirds of it is paid by British Columbians. I think that's important to understand. And uh, I think that it applies often to people that have cottages and cabins that have been in the family for many years. I think there's some inequity around it. And also, frankly, there's a lot of politics around, you know, drawing the lines as to where it applied and where it didn't apply. And conveniently, it didn't apply to certain NDP held writings that I always found a little bit interesting. But look, at the end of the day, what I've always said is, I am going to look at all of the costs the government imposes on housing. I think this is really important to understand. You know, every new housing unit built today, about 25% of the cost is all government cost. Okay, you've got PST, GST, property transfer taxes, speculation taxes, you got vacancy taxes, you got empty land taxes, you got public art charges, you've got all kinds of things. They fill out two thirds of a, a pro forma. And you know, yet at the same time, you hear politicians go on about how concerned they are about affordability. Oh gosh, you know, we're so concerned about affordability. Well, government is a big part of the problem. And so I've said, I'm gonna look at all of the costs that government imposes on housing, especially through the eyes of first time buyers. Because I can tell you, I am very concerned when we've got a generation today that looks at the housing market and says, there's no prospect of me ever owning a home in British Columbia. That's not good enough for me. And I really want to think about those buyers, think about how we help them, uh, you know, when I'm developing tax policy. 
Carbon tax is controversial and unpopular some places across the country, but you were part of the government that invented the thing. Yep. Uh, I assume you still think it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. Would you change it? Yeah, well, I would change it back to being revenue neutral because uh, one of the big mistakes I think the government, this government made was under laws, you know, every dollar had to go back into the pockets of British Columbians in the, in the form of lower business taxes and lower personal income taxes. And, and what the NDP did in their first year in office was change the budget so they could pull it all into government. Billions of dollars over the years that, that they pulled into government and they choose to spend it however they wish. And I think that that broke a fundamental trust that we had with the public. Because here's the problem I have with a lot of environmental policy. It often can be a way for, for politicians to pick the pockets of taxpayers. And what I loved about the revenue neutral carbon tax is it was a tax shift, not a tax grab. And that's what I think, you know, uh, that's what I'm, I'm going to return to. Turning it back into a tax shift, not the tax grab, because I think that that undermined the trust that we had with British Columbians around that. So right now it's raising about $2 billion a year. Does that mean you have to come up with $2 billion uh, of tax cuts in order to balance the revenue neutrality? Well, we'll, we'll <coughs> deal with it. And I don't think it needs, did you say with what cuts? Raising about $2 billion right yeah, now. No, and so if it's going to be revenue neutral, then you got to have offset $2 billion somewhere. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, and I think, look, I, I think managing government just responsibly is uh, one of the things that, that you have to do when you're elected. Um, one of the things I often point out when I'm giving talks is that one of the things that surprised me about when I came back to government was that under five and a half years of NDP government, they somehow managed to grow the civil service by 30% in that period of time, 120,000 new full-time employees. And I have no problem with hiring new employees. You're going to need some in government, of course, as things go along. But I always ask the public, has anyone seen a 30% improvement in any government service? And I've yet to have a single person raise a hand in any of the audiences I've spoke to. Um, that's, that's a $12 billion a year ongoing cost, as you well know. And so I do think that some discipline in government spending is important because at the end of the day, it's not government's money, it's the public's money. And I used to have a sign in my office as finance minister that said, think like a taxpayer. And I don't think there's a lot of people in government today thinking like a taxpayer, to be honest with you, because I do think a lot about, you know, the single mom in Surrey that's, you know, trying to make ends meet and, you know, is $200 a month away from not being able to meet her family budget every month. Uh, you know, every time you do something like increase fuel taxes even more or, you know, add new costs, that makes it tougher for those folks. And... You know, I think there has to be financial discipline in government. So what does the economy of British Columbia look like moving forward? Uh, we're still rooted heavily in natural <coughs> resources, but we have to shift away from that. How do we continue to attract the businesses of the future mm -hmm. that will be able to provide the kind of uh, revenue through taxes that you're going to need? Like, do you have a vision of a different British Columbia? Yeah, well, look, I think we have to understand we're in a rapidly changing world. And we're in a world where there's a lot of uncertainty, global uncertainty. You've got the war in Ukraine. You've got, you know, uh, instability in China, Hong Kong, around the world, and even in the United States, frankly. Um, Canada has a big opportunity in that we're, uh, we're seen as a very, very stable environment compared to all the rest. And what I think is important to attract capital and attract families and attract investment is policy stability, too. That's really important. And making sure that you've got, a, you know, going, going back to my sandbox analogy, make sure that you've got a tax and regulatory regime that is competitive, that will attract people, that they know isn't going to change every 30 minutes, 
uh, that they can go in and you know build a business and raise a family and build a future here in British Columbia. I think we can do that, uh, but I also think it's helpful if you've got people in government that do you know have that private sector background and kind of understand what it takes to make sure you've got a sandbox that people are willing to play in. And uh, you know it, the problem is with government, it's never one decision they make that really get you. You know, it's not any single decision they make. It's the 50th decision they make that finally beats down, you know, capital or small business to a point where they're like, ah, it's just not worth it anymore. I'm going to sell and get out or I'm going to close the business or whatever. Your, your reference to the size of the public service. So there was an event at the legislature a couple of weeks ago marking uh, the return to government of thousands of workers in the healthcare system. Uh, at the lower end of the wage scale, uh, they were cleaners, they were janitors, they were uh, uh, culinary workers, restaurant workers, and their their jobs were contracted out by the Liberal government. Yes. Um, and a lot of them went to private companies and they lost their jobs and they lost their benefits and they were paid less. And the New Democrats brought in legislation to bring them back. It was Bill 47. Um, the, the thing that really jumped out on that is that this was, these were mostly women. They were mostly South Asians because many, many of them were in the south of the river. I remember one leader in the Indo-Canadian community said to me that, you know, they were our wives and our mothers and our aunties and our daughters and our sisters. And they really took it hard. They had, they lost a lot. And it was a real celebration bringing them back. I think it was about 4,000 of them brought back to public sector jobs with good benefits and long-term job stability. Is that one of the mistakes the Liberals made when they were in government, pushing all those people out the door? You know, I think, you know, again, the context is important, Vaughn, but, you know, I think I, you can look at that. And if I had to make a decision today about that, that probably wouldn't have been the decision, frankly. But... The context at the time was we inherited 10 years of an NDP government. And at that time, they had doubled the debt. We had the highest income tax rates in North America. We had an economy that was sputtering. They ran deficits eight out of the 10 years they were in government. And the last two years was only because, as you recall, LNG prices, or sorry, gas prices uh, went up dramatically. And, you know, so we were trying to, frankly, right-size government to get back to a place where government was going to be affordable and not every decision we made was a good one. I, I often say to people that you have to have the humility in government to acknowledge that you're not always going to make good decisions and not every decision we made was a good one. But we got the big things right, I would argue. We did get us back to, you know, financial discipline. We did get back to balanced budgets. We did, you know, we were able to lower personal income taxes 25% across the board. Uh, we did get us back to a AAA credit rating. We were able to invest in hospitals and schools and infrastructure right across the province at record levels. Um, and we hosted a, you know, one of the great Winter Olympics ever. But we didn't get it all right. And uh, I think we have to acknowledge that. And that was probably one of the decisions that uh, we could have done better. Why did it take a change of government uh, for, to, for a government, the province, to finally start taking what was going on with money laundering seriously? Why, why did the previous government turn such a blind eye to that for so long? Well, I think the money laundering question is an important one because I can honestly tell you, like I left government, as you know, and I re resigned, uh, announced my resignation in 2012. I don't ever recall hearing anything about money laundering at all. And I can assure you, if just as a member of cabinet, I was never a minister responsible for gaming, but just as a member of cabinet, if I even heard 
that there was some issue around there. I can assure you that that would have been raised at cabinet by myself or others for sure. Um, so, you know, the, the David Eby, you'll recall, made a lot of allegations around that that subsequently turned out not to be true when Judge Collin actually took a long look at the situation. He, for example, suggested there was all this money laundering going on that, you know, it was Chinese money laundering. It was going into the real estate market and driving up prices. And he called the BC Liberals corrupt and all this kind of very reckless allegations, I would argue. Turned out when Judge Collin took a very sober look at the situation, he didn't agree with him on, on almost any of those points. But I think the issue of money laundering, you also have to be careful because the Chinese culturally do gamble and they do come from uh, a country where you know there is, you know, government is very different than than our government, and uh, just trying to get money out of China is very difficult to do, and you know, so I, I think you, we have to be careful not to stereotype, uh, you know, the the Chinese and assume that everyone's money laundering because they come with a large amount of cash to a casino, but what we discovered in that whole uh, process is that the federal involvement in this is through FinTrack is virtually non-existent. It turns out that all these reports that get filled out and sent to FinTrack, nobody actually is doing any analysis of them and saying, gee, you know, Mr. Palmer's come in, uh, you know, five days in a row and he's got $100,000 cash every time. That should be a signal that we should maybe do some investigation. None of that apparently was happening. So I think there's a systemic failure. The province has to take responsibility for its share. But there's a big part of the federal government there that has a not, you know, a role to play there too. I deny the hundred thousand dollars absolutely. <laughs> I've always wanted to deny something to a politician. God knows they deny things to me often. <laughs> Just to uh, come back to healthcare at the moment, uh, Sean, you've got a, a question here that I think is important, especially in light of when we heard from uh, Premier Horgan going, "Well, you know, it's the feds aren't giving us enough money. How do we, Sean? Uh, maybe you can pose the question." Um, absolutely. The question is. Uh, how would you formulate your request to the federal government for healthcare dollars? What metrics would you require and use? Oh, what a great question. Whoever sent that in, uh, send them back a you know, thumbs up for me because look, I, I'll tell you right now, I've said this publicly. I don't think the federal government should just give the provinces more money because you know, if you just throw more money into the current system without changes, that money will disappear like that. It's not just about more money, folks. If it was just about more money, then all our healthcare problems would have been solved by now. Because when I ran for office, you go check on. In 2001, the budget of healthcare was $8.5 billion. When I left, it was almost $19 billion. Okay? So there's been a lot more money that's gone into healthcare. It is not just about more money. It's how we're spending those, money, those dollars. What I would say to the federal government is, listen, I do think you should contribute more, but let's, let's tie that dollars to, to provinces that are willing to change and try different things and have the courage to do innovation to see whether we can get better outcomes. And where we get better outcomes, you reward us with more cash. But if you just say to the provinces, we're gonna give you a blank check and give you some more money, you're not gonna change a thing. You won't see the kind of innovation that we need to see in our healthcare system. I'll tell you this, this may be my, my legacy should I become premier because I want that healthcare system to be there for my kids when they grow up. And I'll tell you, at the rate we're going, it's not going to be. We're going to be spending our entire budget on healthcare, especially with an aging population and a, a system that is impervious to change, very resistant to change. We have to have politicians that have the courage to try things differently. We really do. 
I'm going to start, we'll jump around from topic to topic right at the moment. One thing that I uh, feel fell off the radar screen uh, was a transportation uh, policy over the last seven or eight years. Mm -hmm. You've been in that portfolio. Mm -hmm. How do we, can, when we consider the important role of Vancouver as a port and uh, the airport and also Prince Rupert, What's a comprehensive tra transportation strategy that can help to ensure that we're meeting the needs of our fellow Canadians across the country? So this, oh, I love this question, uh, because I chaired the Asia Pacific Gateway Strategy that looked at British Columbia and said, you know, in the context of a changing world, a growing Asia, um, we're the nearest piece of real estate to Asia, you know, in North America. Um, we need to make investments to capitalize on that. We did that in, in the uh, Port of Prince Rupert. We did that in the Port of Vancouver with the expansion of, of the uh, third berth, uh, with the, uh, the work that was done around the ports, the railways, the investments in, in things, you know, everything, all the, the Canada Line, the Evergreen Line, the Portman Bridge, the South Fraser Perimeter Road, the Pitt River Bridge, the Kicking Horse Canyon, all the improvements on the number one. These were all about thinking about the movement of goods and people, that's a side benefit, throughout the Lower Mainland. And, you know, there's not, there's just no vision today, I'll tell you honestly. In fact, what I'm seeing horrifies me. We, we saw the cancellation of the Massey Bridge, a 10-lane bridge that was designed to allow for future rapid transit so we could connect the Bridgeport SkyTrain station in Richmond all the way up and over into South Surrey. That's thinking generationally, thinking ahead. The NDP canceled that, even though 100 million had already been spent, and now they want to do this foolish idea of an eight-lane tunnel with two lanes dedicated for buses. You can't do rapid transit. That means you got three lanes in each direction for commuters, which is what we have today. And it's already congested to death. And then they go and replace a bridge like the Patalo Bridge, an 80-year-old bridge. Imagine that. In 1938, that bridge was built four lanes. In those days, it must have been amazing. Because how many cars would there have been in 1938? But they had the vision to think ahead. What's this NDP government do? They're going to replace the bridge with a four-lane bridge. And it connects to the fastest growing community in the province, Surrey. And that makes no sense. So we have to have people that are thinking about transportation and thinking ahead generationally. That we're making those investments now for the benefit of future generations that are growing up. And, and, and that's I, I, there's just a total absence of vision as far as I'm concerned in the transportation investments in the province of British Columbia. And then the final thing I'll say is they're doing them under these so-called community benefit agreements. And I'll tell you, these are like, they should be called community ripoff agreements, to be honest with you, because they are disastrous in terms of taxpayer dollars. They're virtually every single one of them is dramatically behind budget, or sorry, way over budget and way behind schedule, including the Patala Bridge. We have a question from Anita Huberman, the uh, CEO at the Surrey Board of Trade. Amy? I'm Anita Huberman. I'm president and CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. We're a Surrey city building business organization. And Kevin, I have two questions for you. Uh, the first one is businesses are facing significant bottom line erosion. What are you going to do and the BC Liberals about committing to a comprehensive tax review to ensure that businesses are competitive nationally and internationally? Uh, great question. And, and Anita does an excellent job at the Surrey Board of Trade. I have to tell you, she's, she's something else. I actually used to sit on that board. But look, I, I think this is, goes back to when I talked earlier about it's never one decision the government makes. It's the 50th. Um, just think about small business for a second. I actually was talking to a doctor. Physicians are small businesses. A lot of people forget that. 
and the doctor was saying, you know, Kevin, I'm, I'm leaving the business uh, because it's just, it's too hard now. We got an employer health tax that was, that was imposed on us. Then we have five paid sick days. That's another cost that was imposed. Then we've got, you know, corporate taxes went up 20%, so that's another cost. Then when they take their money out, they're paying the highest, you know, marginal income tax rate practically in North America at 53.5%. And they say, you know, it's so easy for them to look next door and say, gosh, you know, housing prices are half of what they are here in Alberta. And, uh, you know, I'd be paying way less in income taxes. And it's a much more favorable climate for, for small business. So we just have to, again, think about the challenges small business has gone through, especially over the last couple of years. Now, I would argue the federal government actually did a pretty good job of stepping forward and really, you know, flooding the zone with dollars during COVID, et cetera, to try and, you know, keep a lot of businesses going. Um, but, you know, the, the province was largely absent from that. The, the program that they announced, as you recall, Vaughn, actually didn't actually start, you know, distributing anything until it was largely we were through the pandemic itself. And, and it was very scattered and frankly didn't meet the needs of business. But, but I do think that we just have to think about um, the costs that we impose on businesses because we do want them to thr thrive. My small business strategy is I'd like to see small businesses get bigger. That, that's a good approach. I, I, you know, I don't want them to be fighting to maintain their small business status. I want them to feel confident and enthusiastic about hiring people, growing their business, feeling like they got a bright future. But most of the small business people I talk to now reflect what Anita's is talking about. She calls it bottom line erosion, but what it really is is being you're, you're constantly being hit with new costs and new regulatory requirements and red tape and all the other burdens, and not just from the province, but also local government. And I just think that you know they do need advocates that think about the real world that they live in and how tough it is to run a business and meet a payroll and the stress that you go through. Um, and, and I think that you know having people in government that have been through that, have lived that experience, probably not a bad thing. I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to step in here and say, as a small business owner, I see one decision after another making it more and more difficult for me to stay in business. It's only through the uh, never-ending uh, optimism that you see people like push their way through these barriers and grow those businesses. But to get started, I look at it now versus when I started 25 years ago, I wouldn't do it. Uh, and so how can you hope to unwind some of that? Because I've seen it in all governments. Uh, they say, yeah, 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 we're gonna do all the stuff for small business, and then they don't. Because small business owners, as a group, have no voice. Yeah. Like, they don't carry votes. Yeah. Well, you know, my first job in government was to reduce red tape, unnecessary red tape, by one-third in our first three years, which we did, 42%. I'm very proud of that, because a lot of those rules and regulations impacted a lot of small businesses in a very real way. And one of the things that I've heard is a lot of that mentality has come back under this government. It's a government that loves process, to be honest. I would argue that it's, it's not even their fault, frankly. It's just that they confuse outcomes with process. You know, having, hiring more people and creating more paperwork and having more meetings is not an outcome. That's just process. An outcome is what you're actually getting at the, you know, at the final end, whether it's healthcare outcomes or crime outcomes or whatever the case may be, housing outcomes. And I just, I just feel it's important to have people that do come from a private sector background that understand what small businesses do go through and how we want to, again, the sandbox, right? Create that sandbox where the rules are clear, where you've got, you've set the table, so to speak, to attract people to go in there and do what they do best. And by the way, when they succeed, the great thing is we get more revenues into government. That's why you want them to do well. 
one of the concerns I have, uh, as I've noticed over the last five years, most of the job growth that we've seen has been in government. It's not in the private sector. We need to have a thriving private sector. Government itself isn't going to be able to, you know, uh, to take care of all of that. So we have to make sure that the private sector has that confidence. And right now they're feeling very battered and beaten. I hope you don't feel too battered and beaten at the moment after this <laughs> last 70 minutes. But Vaughn, I think we should go around one more time. Sure. And uh, are you up for another round of, of questions yeah, here? Okay, go. Vaughn. LNG. Um, so about a dozen years ago, British Columbia thought there was an opportunity to develop LNG, and a lot of other places did too. And a lot of other places got ahead of us. But we do have an LNG project underway, under construction in Kamloops, biggest private sector investment in BC history. Yeah. This government has continued it. They inherited it from the previous government, but it's underway. There's a pipeline, it's controversial, it's under construction. And the company that's uh, Shell and the partners that are building the LNG terminal in Kitimat have a plan to expand the terminal because if once they get it done and the pipeline's in, they can add trains and produce more LNG. Uh, the government's been asked about that, the Premier's been asked about that, whether or not LNG expansion is in the cards, and he said they have to meet, they would have to meet our emissions targets in 2030 and in 2050. Uh, a lot of observers don't think you can meet emissions targets and produce LNG, not by burning natural gas. Anyway, uh, what's your take on it? Uh, is that uh, green-lighted? If you become Premier, we're going to expand LNG, or are you going to hold it up because of emissions as well? Well, first of all, and I'll answer that directly, but I, I want to give a context because I think it's important. Um, I think British Columbia is poised to make an enormous contribution to a greener planet. And what we have to make sure that people understand is that we are blessed with having some of the natural resources that are absolutely fundamentally necessary to allowing that to happen. And we also have to keep in mind that there's a global context here. Um, you see what's happening with the war in Ukraine where the Europeans have finally woken up and realized, you know what, we can't rely on Russia for gas and oil. Like they are an unreliable, unfaithful partner. And uh, same with many of the other producing countries, whether it's the Arab countries or the Middle East or what have you, they're, they're very unreliable. And that I think is a huge opportunity for British Columbia because we sustainably generate and produce a lot of uh, LNG, potential LNG, natural gas. We certainly have huge reserves of natural gas that we can potentially turn into LNG and feed not just Europe, but Asia. And why is that important? Well, because right now in Asia, they're still opening up gas-fired, uh, sorry, um, uh, coal-fired power plants, which are the dirtiest forms of emission imaginable. And if we, through LNG, can just get them to transition off of their coal-fired power plants, we can't lose sight of the fact that that drops their emissions by up to 50%, okay, global emissions. That is a big contribution to the world, greening the world environment. Now, I get the purists will say, yes, but it's still fossil fuels. We must stop everything now. And I say that that's not realistic. I've done a lot of research in this. I've talked to a lot of people. I am very, very pro-environmental. But the reality is we don't get to the promised land by flicking a switch. It is a transition. And I think that BC ought to be part of fueling that transition to a greener future. So yes, I would support it, subject to meeting some of the emission requirements. Because I think if the Premier said that, I think the Premier's right. There are ways that we can do that, and we can help the industry. Electrification is one of those ways. So there are answers to that problem. There's also answers in technology. We have some really bright people in the tech sector that are helping the oil and gas industry do a lot better in what they do, especially with methane emissions and and regenerating uh, uh, gas, et cetera. So there are some real opportunities out there if we look for them. Um, 
but we also are blessed with natural resources that are going to help us create more electric vehicles, more wind turbines, etc. All of that copper and rare minerals and metals, etc. BC is lucky that we have them in abundance. And we ought to understand the federal government recently has recognized this, which is good. They've said we need to accelerate the approval process to ensure that those rare minerals and those important uh, parts of that green economy future that we all want uh, can get out of the ground and, and help us get those electric cars and those wind turbines and generators built, et cetera. So it's something that I think we can do, Vaughn. I think we can do it responsibly. And I think it's an opportunity for British Columbia because we have an obligation, not just to our own citizenry, but to global citizens, the, the global citizens to do the right thing. So if we want to get those minerals out of the ground that exist here, there has to be an, envi an environmental change around how we're going to allow mining to happen. There's nobody lining up to even invest in mining in British Columbia. How do we change that? Well, I think there can be. I think there's huge opportunities to work with Indigenous communities and First Nations. You know, they're, they're really excited about some of the opportunities that are out there. Uh, but we, you know, we have to work in partnership with them. We have to make sure that we take care of the environmental concerns that every legitimate British Columbia would certainly have. But we have some of the highest standards in the world, bar none. Certainly a lot better than a lot, a lot of other jurisdictions that are mining for a lot of those same resources. And that can be our strength because I think a lot of companies worldwide would rather source their mineral products from a sustainable green economy like British Columbia than, than some of the other jurisdictions. Sean, another question from uh, Slido. Yeah, you bet. Uh, incisive questions keep coming in. It's, uh, it's really good to see. Uh, one that harkens back to uh, what we talked about last month, which was uh, how do we feed BC? And uh, farmers have been facing unprecedented natural disasters. How would you assist them in the creation of resilient business plans? And what incentives would you give to bring more young farmers into BC and encourage more to join the sector? Oh, this is such a great question because I meet with farmers all the time. I travel the province and met with farmers from every part of this province. The message is always, it's universal. Um, the government keeps saying that they care about the family farmer. But the truth is every decision they make uh, is making it harder for the family farmer to survive. And a lot of the kids that have parents farming, they see them work in the hours that they work and they say, oh, that's not for me. I don't want to have to do that. It's very, very difficult to, to make it as a farmer. And what government ought to be doing is trying to figure out how to make their life easier, not harder. What the government has done instead is they've actually added new restrictions to the ALR to make it harder for them to even make any kind of uh, other income on their farm. And that's made it really, really difficult. And they can't build, for example, uh, worker housing that could be really, really helpful to get workers in their farms. You can provide free accommodation or very low cost accommodation. That's one way that you could help get farmers, for example, to be able to farm their land uh, more sustainably and, and, and uh, more profitably. But everything government does works against their interests. So I just think that we have to genuinely ask ourselves this question. If we really do care about the farmers, then we have to understand the world that they actually live in through the eyes of a farmer. And are we making it easier or are we making it harder for farmers? I would argue we've made it a lot harder and we have to really look at what we're doing to them and start working with them instead of against them. David, did you have one other question? As I recall, you said you had two questions for, for Mr. Falcon. <laughs> well, I guess just uh, informally here, uh, you know, certainly we talk about the need for more um, rental housing, purpose-built rental housing in particular, and you're coming from the development uh, uh, community. 
you know, certainly you understand some of the challenges around building more, more rental housing. But I mean, if you were the premier today in terms of sort of targets for, for achieving, uh, you know, a greater supply of rental housing, uh, what would be your goal? I mean, what, what would you uh, like to see evolve over the next five, 10 years? Sure. So, you know, I have said, I've been very clear, and when I spoke at the UBCM in front of all the mayors of the province, I really laid out what the Kevin Falcon vision would look like. And I was very clear that there would be legislative changes to ensure that we have timeliness and certainty in the approval process, because one of the challenges we face in housing is it can take easily five, six years to get a project permitted so that you can actually start uh, building a project. And um, what the public really needs to understand is that there is a real cost to delays. Now, people might think, oh, well, who cares? They're just developers. But one thing I can promise you is all that cost, all that carrying cost, because when developers buy a piece of land, they typically finance 50% of it. And then if it takes them five years to go through, all of those interest costs over that five years, that all gets passed on ultimately to the end user, whether it's a, rent, a renter or a buyer. And so speed is really important because timeliness ensures that not only you get some more supply into the market more quickly, but you also do it more affordably. Um, at the same time, I also said that I would work with municipalities with incentives to, to, so that they want to do the right thing. Because I do think you want to work with them and say, look, how do we make it easier so that we can get approvals a lot faster and, and, and make sure that the province is doing everything to, to not just try and blame it all on the municipalities as David Eby's doing today, I would argue. Uh, because remember, if you're going to in, in, increase the housing uh, by a huge amount in Vancouver, well, you got to think about the schools, you got to think about transit, you got to think about all these other things that we got to make sure that the province is doing their bit and that those dollars are going to be there to ensure that we've got a place for all of these folks to, to go, go to in terms of their transportation and schooling and all the rest of it. So um, I, I was very clear that I would work with municipalities uh, in, in an incentive and a stick approach, carrot and stick I call it. The carrot being financial incentives to do the right thing, the province making sure that we carry our burden and, and do our thing, but also sticks because there are some municipalities that frankly don't do anything to contribute to housing. And their attitude seems to be everyone else can do it, we're just fine the way we are, thank you. That's not gonna work. And I've been very, I was very clear about that at UBCM too. And uh, you know, the interesting thing about that was the response I got back was actually largely pretty positive because I think most of the municipalities recognize that they could do things better. And if we can help them get to that place, they like that. But they also like the fact that we should recognize the ones that are doing a good job, like Burnaby or Surrey or Coquitlam or the city of North Vancouver. There are some municipalities that are really doing their, their bit. And their frustration is the province because the province, they wanna build a lot of affordable housing, for example, but BC housing just is like not working. It's not working for any of them. And they're frustrated by that too. So we need to make sure that we also fix the challenges at BC Housing, which are legion, I can assure you. We already know there's a forensic audit underway at BC Housing and they've got all kinds of, it's been frankly a, a bit of a disaster over there and I, we've questioned the Premier EB about that because he was responsible for it. 17 senior executives left, he had to fire the entire board which was made up of NDP appointees and we now understand that the uh, Comptroller General is doing a forensic audit. So. There are clearly problems in that organization, but we've got to sort those out, fix it, and make sure that they're getting the dollars out to communities so that they can get that affordable done because they've got a lot of projects ready to go, shovel ready. They cannot get the province to move. 
We're just about out of time. But do you have something that you want to share with us that we haven't asked you about that gives us a better sense of who you are and what you would be like as our premier? Well, you know, I think honestly, if, if, you, if you really want to sum up who, who I am, what I care about, I, I really do care a lot about the mental health and addiction issues because I've had friends that have lost children, frankly, through mental illness. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just tragic. And they tried hard to get services for their child. And it's, it's, it's very difficult to do in a very fractured system. And a lot of the facilities we had were, were, were very poor. And I just think we can do a much better job. But at the end of the day, what I honestly care about most is results. I, I, you know, I'm a very pragmatic person. I just want to get to the right results. And if we're not getting, and I'm not afraid to try things, by the way. And if we don't get the right results, I'm not afraid to say, you know what, we're not getting good results here. I accept responsibility for that, but we're going to try something else. Because I don't pretend to have all the answers. I just know how to ask the questions. And I know how to drive um, a bureaucracy towards results. One thing a bureaucracy, because I can tell you, bureaucrats are excellent. We have some outstanding public servants in the province of British Columbia. I know that because I've worked with them. But one thing they really like is clarity. Give very clear direction on where you want to go and then let them do it. And they will do a great job as long as they know that you're going to back them up and you're not going to be changing things midway through and undermining them when things get tough. You know, that's, that's something that I think is really important. But at the end of the day, it's results. And, you know, this government, and they don't, they've done some good things. Because there, there's, you know, I, I can think of some if you give me some time. They have done some good things, so I want to be clear. <laughs> but, uh, but, but the thing is, at the end of the day, the, the results that we're getting, whether it's in housing, you know, housing affordability. Well, the, we've got the highest houses, housing prices in North America. So clearly, whatever they're doing isn't working. We've also got the highest rents in Canada, by the way, back to the earlier question. That's clearly not working. Um, you know, we've got some of the worst healthcare outcomes we've ever seen. That's a real problem. And I'm really concerned about retention because I meet with the nurses union. I meet with doctors and frontline nurses. I'm really concerned just about the people that are there and how tired they're getting and how burnt out they're getting. And we have to do a lot more work to make sure that they feel good about what they're doing too. So there's a lot of things that we have to do, but I really am gonna focus on making sure we get different results than what we're getting. I think it's possible to hold the government to account without descending to the level of personal attack. And I know when you started, you said that that was the approach you were gonna take. And yes. Then I was sitting in the house the other day and I heard you call the premier an arsonist. So I'm kind of <laughs> I'm kind of wondering which direction are you actually headed in on that one? Yeah. Well, we were using a metaphor, of course, to talk about what was happening at BC uh, housing and, uh, you know, how we're now asking the arsonist to, you know, put out the fire. Um, so, you know, it was a metaphor. And as you know, in the house, sometimes we, uh, you know, we try to embellish things to make a point. But look, I, I don't believe in the politics of tearing people apart. You know, I, I used to say this about John Horgan. I don't know David Eby as well. Um, but I used to say about John Horgan, I think he was a, I think he was a good person. I think he meant well and tried to do the right thing for the province. And I wish him the, the you know, and I've said this many times, but I wish him every uh, success, uh, you know, in a full and complete recovery. And, and him and Ellie will have, a, you know, wonderful years ahead of them. And I thank him for his service to the province because I know that being in public life isn't easy, especially when you've got family commitments and everything else. So 
Um, I'll take the same approach with the government. I will be a fierce opponent, don't get me wrong. That's my job. And, and it's frustrating for me because I don't like just being an opposition person, to be honest, because all you do is you're, you're really just critiquing government, where I've just, I'm bursting with ideas of things that I want to do, uh, but you can't do them in, as an opposition person. You can only critique the government. And so my job is to make sure we do a good job of holding government to account, and I will, I will do that. But I will also, in the coming months, lay out where I want to take the province. And uh, I have to be careful there because I've noticed that some of the ideas I've been putting out there that, you know, EB and the NDP have been stealing. And so I don't like that either. So <laughs> I, I got to make sure that I kind of balance my good ideas with making sure they don't just, you know, although at the end of the day, you know, uh, if, if they are going to take ideas that I think are good ideas and actually implement them to get results, I will actually applaud them, especially in the mental health uh, arena, because I do think that that's an area that we can all park the politics and say, you know, is this really working? Can we not do a, a, a better approach? Um, I, I'd be all over that. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for your time. We've been 90 minutes so far. I think we could easily do another 90, but I'm worried that. about wear, wearing you out. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. no. I love that. I really appreciate it. And Vaughn, thanks for taking the time to come over here and Stu right. for putting this together. That was really yeah. good. And thank you. We've got a small studio audience, but uh, I think everybody here uh, <laughs> enjoyed this evening. Yeah, so thank you very much. All right. And just a, a little sign off here. Uh, join us next month in January where we will be digging into energy. What kind of energy will we be using? Where will we get it from? What will we produce? What will we import? How are we going to navigate our way through the energy matrix that lies ahead of us? And just before signing off, I want to thank our sponsors uh, one more time for supporting us. They are Stem Cell Technologies, Landlord BC, uh, Polygon, BD, the Port of Vancouver, Surrey and the Surrey Board of Trade. And lastly, but not least, of course, Apple G Public Relations and Old Boy Productions. Thank you. Good night.